be mild near 40. And then for Tuesday, it's a cloudy day, occasional rain, especially in the morning, and temperatures are very mild again in the low 50s. And then Wednesday, showers early in the morning, but then gradual clearing. It'll become breezy and cool, but still way above normal, 45 to 50. And then Thursday will be in the mid-40s, still above normal, and mostly sunny skies. For Radio Rockland 1300, this is meteorologist Mark Hannock. Believe it or not, we're still at 38. That's where we were at 5.30 this morning, and, but he still contends that uh, we will reach a high of 50. But right now, 38 in Rockland County. The following program is furnished by its producer, hosts, and sponsors. Welcome to Crossroads of Rockland History on WRCR. I'm Claire Sheridan from the Historical Society of Rockland County. Today's program is brought to you, brought to you by the Historical Society of Rockland County's 37th Annual Miniature Dollhouse and Art Exhibition, which is currently on view. The Historical Society is located at 20 Zucker Road in New City, and our exhibition hours are Wednesdays through Sundays from noon till 4. Visit our website at rocklandhistory.org for more information. My guest today is Mark Siegel, who has produced over the course of nine years of research, writing and drawing, a graphic novel entitled Sailor Twain, or The Mermaid in the Hudson. It's a story of mysterious situations on a 19th century steamboat traveling on the Hudson River. Welcome to Crossroads of Rockland History, Mark. Thank you, Claire. My pleasure to be here. Uh, Before we begin to talk about your book, can you give our listeners a bit about your background? Sure, sure. So I, uh, so I was born in, in the States, in Michigan, but then I moved when I was about three months old to France, where I grew up. Uh, my mom's French, my dad's American, and then I came back for college. Um, I went to Brown in Providence, and I lived in Boston for a while. Then I'm, I've been, for about 15 years, um, somewhere along the river towns, at, you know, one part or another along the Hudson Valley, and, um, and working in New York City. And then since then, I've launched, uh, I've been in publishing where I launched an imprint at Macmillan, which is called First Second Books, which uh, publishes graphic novels in all different age categories. And and I have my own projects, um, several picture books that I've produced, and then this new one is an adult graphic novel that just came out. And without giving too much away, uh, can you outline the story of Sailor Twain? Sure. So the setup is 1887. The Gilded Age in New York, and we were on a gigantic steamboat at a time when hundreds of them were plying the river. And it, this one is uh, it's going up basically from Manhattan to Albany and back and making stops along the way. And um, the captain of this particular steamboat finds a wounded mermaid hanging from the side of his ship one night, and he takes her into his cabin, and then everything takes a turn for the strange, of course. And what drew you to do a story about 19th century Hudson River? Well, I've had a a long-standing passion for 19th century America, and specifically New York. And I commute um, from Tarrytown, so you know I'm riding up and down the Hudson River. Uh, And then, you know, in the course of working on this project, uh, first of all, it it just seemed like the setting was too beautiful to pass up. Uh, And it also has there's a great deal of mystery. There's a great deal of romance that I find in the Hudson. Uh, So you know the the possibilities were endless. And then if you add in Washington Irving and the you know some some of these core American myths that are that are centered around here, uh, I just felt like this was this was a perfect. 
and where did you do most of your research? So, uh, well, all over the place. There, the, the kind of more scholarly side of the research, of course, was in uh, many historical societies along up and down the Hudson, also the New York Historical Society in the city, and the New York Public Library. Um, and that was a lot of archives, a lot of old prints, a lot of maps. Um, but then there's also, there was a kind of a more visceral research uh, of just, you know, on my own two feet, just getting to all kinds of places up and down the Hudson and exploring all these different locations. And it's not just a fable of mermaids and sailors, but it goes deeper, doesn't it? Hopefully, yes, yes. Um, well, we've got, there, there, there's, there's basically three love stories that make up the, the, the heart of this story. Uh, and there's, so there's, there, there are a number of secondary characters. There's uh, the people on board this ship. There's not only the captain, there's two men that are central to the story. There's the captain, who's an American, um, and then there's this, the French ship owner, uh, whose name is Lafayette, and these two men have very, very different views about about everything, about morality, about women, um, and their arcs have a way of crossing, uh, and their connection to the mermaid, of course. And can you talk a little bit about the concept of serializing this story? Um, was that always part of your plan? Sure, yeah. Well, actually, no. Um, it, the, the book was always a book uh, to begin with, so it was always a book project. And then as I got going, after a few years of really working the script and exploring the characters and doing some of the background historical research, um, you know, I became very aware of, of the, the importance of the serial novel in, in the 19th century, you know, and starting with Harriet Beecher Stowe and Uncle Tom's Cabin and, and then all the great 19th century writers that we know reached these big audiences because of serializing their novels you know, and most people know the, the, the stories of, you know, crowds of readers flocking to the docks for the next installment of, of like, great, great expectations. And, um, and I thought, okay, well, this, this would be a kind of a fun experiment, would be to serialize this story. But today, serializing in print is kind of dying out, mostly. And uh, the, 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 the new incarnation of that is, is online. Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's fascinating that, you know, this very sort of old-fashioned, if you will, way of publishing something yeah. is having a rebirth on, on the web, which exactly. is great. Exactly, exactly. Um, were you ever concerned that your audience would lose interest? Oh, yeah, of course I was, definitely. In fact, you know, starting out, I thought I would give that three months and see, and I was prepared to kind of ditch that idea if it didn't really work, because, um, you know, it is a, it's a slow-building story. It's not... It's in, done in comics, you know, so it's a graphic novel, but it's not really, you know, it's not the language of superheroes and um, action comics. It's like, it, it has a slow start, and then it layers on these mysteries, and it's, you know, it's kind of a long, a long haul of a story with a kind of 19th century plot, you know, intricacy of a plot. So I didn't know, would anybody even come along for the ride, you know, for more than a few pages, because on the Internet today it seems like attention span is forever dwindling but I was wrong you know and, and the uh, a great many people did come along for the ride it, it went on for two years I would put up a page every Monday Wednesday and Friday and then there was a blog entry with some surrounding history and research and or lo a, a love letter to the Hudson basically um, and and it was about 800,000 unique readers that came for the ride Wow. So, you know, as you mentioned, this was such a popular form of publishing for Dickens and Melville, for example. Yeah. 
But what they didn't have is the immediacy of the Internet. That's right. And you could get feedback from your readers almost immediately, right? Yeah, that was, that was just a fascinating part of the experiment. And so many unexpected magical surprises came of that. Um, I mean, yes, first of all, just interacting, you know, I think for anybody working on, whether it's a novel or a graphic novel, if you're working on a big project, and this one was a big project, a 400-page thing, you know, in, for, in, in charcoal, um, it can be a very, very lonely process, um, and, and writers have a special brand of neuroses just because of their loneliness generally. And in this case, you know, three times a week, um, I would be received, you know, and that was that was the first surprise. It, it was just a, a, a remarkable thing. And then people getting inside the story, speculating about the mysteries, discussing the characters, um, that was just really remarkable. And then, of course, there were a couple of people who were like the real, in some cases, history buffs, in some cases, even like steamboat geeks who knew everything about pistons or about the widths of floorboards in the captain's cabin, <laughs> you know, and they would give me feedback of that kind, um, which I would incorporate, you know, and I would fix, like, whatever I didn't get right. Wow, that's great. <laughs> um, and how, how about the historical accuracy? Were you very concerned about this as you began, and did you become more concerned about it as you got this feedback? I did. I had a, well, it's a funny concern, because in a way I, I was coming from uh, not from the historian's perspective, but, you know, I'm basically from the storyteller's perspective. So so I'm quite happy to use and abuse history uh, in every way I can, as long as it doesn't um, diminish its main service to the story, which is, which is credibility. So I wanted to build a story that would immerse the reader in 1887 New York. Uh, and so for that, I, I got into the times, I got into... Uh, the mood, what was in the air, and, and the two from that research, some of the threads that that became the the strong running undercurrents of the story were the feminist movement and the and the the black emancipation movement, which were pretty inseparable one from the other, and those played into especially into one of the characters uh, who's an author in the story. You're listening to WRCR and Crossroads of Rockland History, sponsored by the Historical Society of Rockland County. I'm Claire Sheridan, and my guest is Mark Siegel, the author of the new graphic novel entitled Sailor Twain, or The Mermaid in the Hudson, published by First Second Books. Our phone lines are open, so if you have a question or a comment, we'd love to hear from you. Our number is 845-362-0013. That's 845-362-0013. Well, the Hudson River does have a mythic quality. Was this part of your desire to make this locale uh, central to your story? Yeah, definitely. It really, it really does have a mythic quality. Even just physically, you know, when you're where, like, I'm across the river from you, pretty much, and I, you know, two and a half to three miles separate us, and it's just, it's a, uh, it's very impressive physically. But then, you know, when you dig deeper and you start finding the the nature of it, that it's sometimes salty, sometimes fresh water, that the Algonquins called it the river that flows two ways, and it has this duality about it that makes it very unique. Um, It has a very different feel. I was obviously reading a lot about the Mississippi and and Mark Twain and that that whole um, love affair with a a river, but the Mississippi has a totally different nature. It's, It's in sand. 
Hudson, so it's always shifting, whereas our river, our Hudson is in this bed of granite, you know, and it hasn't really budged since the Ice Age. And, <laughs> uh, and so something about that, and then when you start getting into some of the folk tales, some of the legends, some of the, the famous river bends, you know, I, I play a lot with World's End, which is this, the most dangerous bend in the river near West Point. Mm-hmm. Or you look at Storm King, or, you, or sometimes on the big, um, these spectacular northeast storms that we get, the, the, the moods of the river and the, the feel of the river is just like, it, it, it's all pregnant with stories. And I think Washington Irving was very interested in developing a new American myth for, for a, basically a young nation. Um, and I feel like the, the river does that if you, if you give it a chance. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Do you, have, do you have a personal connection with the river? I know you spoke about the fact that you travel on it. Um, I, yeah, I do. I mean, I've definitely found my, some of my favorite haunts, you know, and some of my favorite walks along the river. And I keep discovering new ones. Uh, and I feel like it was just at a, at a moment in my life where um, I was partly, you know, I had just recently moved to New York, and that was right away my first point of connection was the river. Uh, and, and then it's, it has a strange, the, the relationship that, that humans have had to it has changed so much over the years. And at one point it was such a, a dumping ground for, for pollution, and now people are starting to prize it and... and uh, you know, so I made, in the course of Sailor Twain, I made a lot of connections to Hudson Valley people. Uh, there's the award-winning Hudson Valley winery, Millbrook Winery up in near Poughkeepsie. They, they, um, they put out two Sailor Twain wines. Oh, great. <laughs> uh, there's the Clearwater, the Pete Seeger's amazing ship, which has kind of become an emblem of the river. Uh, it turned out the crew was, they were all reading Sailor Twain online, and they called me last summer to say they wanted to offer me the ship for an evening, and and so we did a Sailor Twain sunset sail from Manhattan. Wow, that's great. And all this stuff, you know, magic stuff just happened from, from serializing it. And, and the artwork in the book, I mean, it's, it's such a large part. I mean, the story, of course, is, is beautiful. But the artwork is exquisite. Um, and talk a little bit about that process. Um, sure. Yeah, it was that that uh, you know comics are not typically done in charcoal, and there's there are good reasons for that. It's very messy. You have to work pretty big if you want to get any any detail in there, and it's. Um, but it was like when I picked up a piece of charcoal, I, I had to basically ditch my first thirty pages attempt <laughs> because it was exactly the mood I was looking for. It was this kind of smoky, steamy? Uh, it's always pretty much always raining from the moment the captain meets the mermaid onwards and um so working in charcoal was a you know it was a choice and it had a it had a price but it also had a, a reward to it which was like an immediate kind of a sensory tactile feel to it you know and you get the grain of the paper you can get very dark or you can get very light and just a hint of a like almost like a ghost image of a, a steamboat passing in the fog um so that i i really enjoyed it i it was very you know i had to scrub my hands and change clothes before going off to work after my studio sessions in the morning. But it was, um, what I love about the, the potential, I think, of graphic novels when they're handled, you know, in a kind of, with, with a literary mindset, which is like, you know, really focusing on story, focusing on character, is that you can, you can slow down your reader, uh, and you can cause them sometimes to even go back and look at other 
things and there there's certain things that are foreshadowing and even metaphors that you can handle entirely visually uh, yes. so uh, there so uh, there was a lot of that yeah i i liked the um you know your your section headers that uh-huh. had all the little newspaper clippings and the yeah. articles and <laughs> you know when you read those carefully and i found myself going back and rereading you know there's a little a little newspaper clipping about stony point which yeah. you know it's just that the attention to detail is just meticulous and uh-huh. it, you know um you know I, I have to give you credit for really um you know making a beautiful beautiful book Thank the, you, the other remarkable thing about your drawings is just you know you sort of mentioned it how you are able to set the pace mm. with them um you know comics you think of as you know this is a quick thing right but i wasn't tempted to rush through it Great. um <laughs> you know I, I i i did go back and reread and relook at these things um as you were releasing it little by little, do you think that was helpful in, in, in keeping the interest of the, of the reader when they were reading it as a serialized piece? I, I think so, you know, and it definitely, I became aware as I was putting out one page at a time that these people were, were studying these pages and responding to very, very subtle details or even the, the shift of a, of a character's expression, uh, and they were reading it with a care that, I, you know, I don't. I, I have no way of knowing if people reading it in print have that kind of attention uh, to what's going on. But it, you know, it, it did. It did cause uh, a, a, that much more care, in a sense, in terms of giving it a density. You know, and, and packing it both emotionally and narratively in a way that uh, I. I really do love books that uh, that invite rereading. You know, those are are my favorite books. Are the ones I keep returning to. And so I was hoping to craft something like that. Well, I think you did. <laughs> Thank you, Claire. Um, Thank you. <laughs> um, is the design of the Lorelei, which is the name of the ship, taken yeah. from a real ship? So it is, um, and that is actually where I took a little bit of license. It's based on the the Robert E. Lee, which is a famous Mississippi steamboat. Uh, now, people who know steamboats will tell you that the, the Mississippi shallow draft boats are very different than the Hudson ones. And the Hudson actually had very beautiful steamboats, like the Mary Powell was the most famous of them. And they were, in a way, sleeker, and they were designed for a deep, deep water draft, so they, they had different engineering. But in this case, I was kind of tapping a little bit into the, um, the Mark Twain life on the Mississippi feel, and, and what I did is I made a model of the Robert E. Lee, but I, I, I um, modified it, so I doubled up the decks, I doubled up the smokestacks, I added this very fancy Victorian conservatory. So everything about it, I wanted it to feel authentic, you know, and, and I used the model to look at how the rigging would cast shadows and how, you know, to try and make it as convincing as possible, even though there was never such a steamboat on the Hudson. Yeah, it's it's clear that, I mean... How long did it take you to build um, to build this model? Ah, it was a good few weeks, I remember, maybe a couple months. Wow, that's great. Uh, um, and I built out, there were other little models I made, like I couldn't find much reference for the engine rooms, you know, so I built a little model of the engine room with the furnaces and things so I could kind of figure out my, my camera angles, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and... And where did you do most of your research? And you talked about the New York Public Library and the New York Historical Society. Um, did you ever get up to the um, 
Hudson Maritime Museum in Kingston? I sure did. I sure did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a beautiful, I mean, the trick with the research is, you know, I would gather a lot, a lot, a lot of stuff. And then in my early, in the early drafts of the script, um, I remember a particular stage when I had to go back through and pretty much strip out my favorite um, historical lessons, you know. Mm -hmm. And there were all kinds of things like that that I would collect. I'd be like, oh, this is such a great, you know, a great thing here about a little tidbit about Socrates in the 19th century or and and, uh, and mostly whenever in the end what what happened is I, I looked through the script and I tried to prune out anywhere I was showing off my research <laughs> instead of telling a story you know right that must have been that must have been um, important because after all yeah. you, you really are trying to tell a story and that's right and it's like that, kill your darlings you know you kind of I mean some of that stuff did creep in a little bit but I, I got most of it out that's like I love there's just these useless strange facts that you come across like the fact that there was so much sturgeon in the Hudson that that these steamboats were serving instead of peanuts for the snacks for their passengers they were serving caviar Hudson caviar wow and I tried to, you know, I was like, is there any way I can fit that in? <laughs> and I make a, just an indirect remark at one point that kind of hints at that. Well, I think also that um, the the beauty of the interiors of these boats, really, you know, the, that's sort of lost. I mean, the kind of boats that we yes. travel on, um, on the Hudson yes. certainly, uh, have no relation to how grand and beautiful the interiors were and I think that's, that's right you know. that's right and the state rooms you know people would be it was like a whole lifestyle and and, and you're smack right in it in the one of the peaks of the industrial revolution and it's like the steamboat is this emblem of both the power this newfound power of industrialization but also the beauty of of a, a, a kind of a new age of travel and uh, people would go on these day liners or or these night liners like the Lorelei, um, where they would have these state rooms and there'd be you know these lavish dinners and balls <laughs> at night, costume balls. Right, it's just a different world, really. Yeah. Um, and it, it it really was uh, it was a f it was absolutely fun to read it. So so what Thank about so the future? Much, yeah. What's um, what's next for you? So I'm playing with a couple things. I have a couple of picture books. I mean, what I I my, the stuff I've put out before were picture books for children. This one clearly is not for children. It's an adult story. Um, but I have a couple more p children's picture books. And then there's something brewing, um, which I dare not even speak of in any detail, but uh, there's something cooking that would probably involve some a new round of, of uh, historical research. Oh, great. A graphic novel. Oh, we look forward to that. That's great. Um, well, that's our program for today. I would like to thank my guest, Mark Siegel. Mark, it was a pleasure having you on the program today. My pleasure, Claire. Thank you so much. Thank you for your lovely show. Oh, sure. This is great. It's um, an honor to be here. Great. Mark Siegel's book, again, is Sailor Twain or the Mermaid in the Hudson, published by First Second Books. This book is available wherever books are sold, and it would be a great holiday gift. I know I have bought a few copies already for people on my gift-giving list. Yay. Thank you so much, Claire. <laughs> and there's more to find if people want to look it up at SailorTwain.com. Okay, wonderful. Lots of, uh, love That's letters to the Hudson. Excellent, yes. Um, so I hope uh, our listeners will tune in to the next Crossroads of Rockland History show on January 21st, right after the Steve and Priscilla Morning Show. It might be a surprise to our listeners to learn that at one time, this county was home to several different airports and numerous smaller airstrips. We'll delve into this topic on our next program. 
While a handful of Rockland airports began operations in the 1920s and 30s, the late 1940s was the height of interest in aviation in the county. Adam Raines and Richard Mack McVicker, two lifelong aviation enthusiasts, will join me. They are currently researching and writing a book about the airports of Rockland County. I hope you'll tune in. That's Monday, January 21st, right after the 10 a.m. news. The Historical Society of Rockland County is a member-supported, nonprofit organization chartered by the New York State Board of Education. Our mission is to promote and share the history of Rockland County and the Lower Hudson Valley to the people of Rockland. Our annual appeal for financial support is underway. We need your financial help to continue our important work. If you love history, if you like this program, please consider making a financial contribution to the Historical Society of Rockland County. Visit our website at rocklandhistory.org and click on How You Can Help or call us at 634-9629. On behalf of everyone at the Historical Society of Rockland County, I would like to wish everyone a happy holiday. Whatever you celebrate, may it bring you peace and joy. I'm Claire Sheridan. Thank you for listening to Crossroads of Rockland History on WRCR. you to ride a bike. He read to you when you were scared. Your mom hugged you tight on the first day of school. Now you can be there for them. And of course, you want only the best. Ramapo Manor Center for Rehabilitation and Nursing, with its highest standards of care, has earned a reputation for excellence since 1957. We treat each resident like a member of our own family. We also boast top-notch nursing, gourmet meals, live music and entertainment, six lovely acres of landscaped gardens and state-of-the-art equipment and therapies. Life is to be lived. Let us help mom and dad live and enjoy it. Ramapo Manor Center for Rehabilitation and Nursing in Suffern in Rockland County, New York. Because taking care of moms and dads is what we're all about. Call us today at 845-357-1230. That's 845-357-1230. It is 40 degrees and drizzling in Rockland County. We are headed for a high this afternoon, supposedly of 51.